is it you haven't seen the god song psycho? Bro, you have seen Taxi Hello and welcome to another episode of FilmWise, also known as the Why Haven't You Seen This Film podcast. My name is Bubba Wheat from Flights, Tights, and Movie Nights. And as always here, we are. I have a guest with me, and we will be talking about a couple different movies. And uh, today my guest is Shala Thomas from Life Between Films. How are you doing today? Hello, how are you? Finally, we get together to talk about these movies. <laughs> yeah, and I, I'm looking forward to it. I think there's a lot to talk about. But uh, before we get into the film-related questions I have for you, why don't you go ahead and uh, introduce yourself real quickly and let everybody know where they can find you online. Yes, um, my name is Shayla Thomas, and I am a film blogger. I have my own uh, blog that's, a, that's focused on independent cinema. Um, as you mentioned, Life Between Films. I'm also a film contributor at Cinematic Can Jammer, as well as a contributor for Blurred Nation and a film festival contributor for uh, the large association of movie blogs, The Lamb. Yeah, I, I'm always jealous because I've, I've always seen you going to several different film festivals each year. My new obsession. <laughs> new obsession. <laughs> Okay, so um, as always, I have some film-related questions to get to know a bit of your movie tastes. So what are three movies that you've seen the most often and haven't gotten tired of yet? Okay, uh, one I would say is um, Before Sunrise, Before Sunset. Well, I'll group those as one movie because I always have to watch them together. <laughs> um, I'll say that was that would be number one. Um, I just love the way these movies discuss life and these two pairs of characters. Um, we get to see how they interact and how they, they fall in love. And as I get older, I, I guess I gain a little bit more understanding of their points of views and, and just the things they discuss and how it impacts my life. It just changes as I get older. So I can never get tired of watching these movies. I, I think I gain from them something different every time I see them. Yeah, I've, I've heard that a lot. And, and I... Uh, just recently, uh, well, a few months ago now, watched Before Sunrise, mm -hmm. um, and and I really liked it. I, although I haven't gotten around to watching uh, either of the next two yet, but I, but I do really want to. Yeah, I would recommend it. Um, the second one would probably, and this will show you just how much of a quote unquote girl I am. I would say it would be uh, Pride and Prejudice in uh, the last adaptation, um, 2005, with Keira Knightley and Matthew McFadden. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think I've always, before I got really into movies, I was big into reading novels and literature. Um, so I think that kind of goes into my love of books and then movies that adapt books and novels. Um, and I think this is one of my favorites uh, in contemporary uh, films. And it just always interests me how people kind of modernize these classical literature. Um, and, and it kind of deviates a little bit from the book in terms of char characterization. Because um, here we get a more, you know, in the beginning, hostile Elizabeth and a more sheepish, so socially awkward Mr. Darcy. But I think in a way it works. And I think this movie has very beautiful performances from both of the lead characters. 
So yeah, I've I've always found it kind of fascinating because there's there's so many different ways to adapt um, the um, literature from that era because you can do a, a straight period piece having it set back then. Or you can have it modernized, but still use the language from the book. Yeah. And and you can also have it just completely modernized with modern language and everything. Exactly. And I think it's really it's really tough to adapt books, and which is why you know books are usually better than a film. Um, but and sometimes it works, and I think here it works. Mm-hmm. And I would say the third one would be my all-time favorite movie, which is Memento. Anyone who knows that that is my favorite movie of all time. It kind of was my introduction to independent cinema. Um, I had always kind of heard of this movie. I I, I didn't really get into movies until 10 years ago. And I always kind of heard about this movie, saw posters for it. But on my 21st birthday, one of my friends, uh, we got together for a group of friends got together for to watch movies for my birthday. And one of my best friends said, have you seen this? This is a great movie. You shall sit down and watch it. And that was Memento. And that blew me away. And to this day, I'm a big Christopher Nolan fan. Um, I would see anything he, he puts out. So <laughs> Memento is it, it to me, it just this example of innovative filmmaking and just coming up with a very inventive concept in, in the presentation. So it, it just blows me away every time I watch it. Yeah, that's that's probably one of the, one of my first handful of handfuls of movies that I saw uh, after getting into film as well and it's just so so really brilliantly made and and it made me a big fan of Christopher Nolan as well and just the way um it's set up I, I know it's it's always um referred to as being being um shown in back in reverse order even though technically it's it cuts back and forth from both ends of the story, and then it meets in the middle. Exactly. And then uh, one thing I always have to ask um, anybody that brings up this movie, because I do you have uh, the special edition DVD where you can uh, actually watch the movie in chronological order? I do not, and I have not seen it that way. I don't know. For me, it, it's it's just more interesting to watch it as it as it was released mm-hmm. and to try because I, I love movies that you have to think you have to really pay attention to um and i like the way you watch it and you have to you know make you see the, the detail that went in it in order to present it in the way that it's presented so but i haven't seen it in chronological have you seen that yes i i, I do have the uh, it's a two disc special edition it, it's uh, it's a really neat um uh, packaging and and the uh, the DVD menus are like a psychological test, <laughs> and, and it's in fact it, it's for some people I think it's almost goes a little too far because it does take a little bit of doing to get to the actual movie. <laughs> all the tests, it's all the tests. But it, it's it's a real testament to that movie that watching it in chronological order it, it does hold up just as well. Yeah, I have to look into that. Okay, and then what is your favorite movie that you've only seen once? I think I would have to say um, 21 Grams. Have you seen that movie? Um, no, I, I haven't seen it. Uh, I've I, I recognized the title, but it's I think it gets lumped in with a few movies that I always confuse between each other. So, so yeah, so 21 Grams uh, came out in 2003. 
Uh, so it stars uh, Sean Penn, Naomi Watts, and Benicio Del Toro. And it was directed by uh, Alessandro Gonzalez Naruto. And it's a movie that is really emotionally heavy. So it, it kind of deals with these three characters um, where you see them at the highest point in their life and the lowest point in their lives. So it starts off where um, you have Naomi Watts, which represents kind of this emotional transcendence in the movie. Sean Penn is, is represents the physical and uh, Benicio Del Toro represents the spiritual. So what happens is that, um, and I only seen it once. So if I remember what happens, <laughs> <laughs> Sean Penn is married and, you know, he's going through life. Um, I think he has some sort of heart condition or some sort of medical condition to where he is starting to get better. Uh, but then he has a setback to where he needs a transplant. I think it's a heart transplant or something. Um, and so he kind of falls into this despair. Naomi Watts is his, is his mother. She has two daughters, um, and she's married. Um, and so she's, she's, you know, emotionally happy and stable in her life. Um, and Benicio Del Toro is, a, is, I think he's an ex-convict and he has some problems in the past with, um, with the law, but he's getting his life back on track, you know, because he's found God and he's on his religious um, path uh, to, mm-hmm. find, to finding salvation. So what happens is that Benicio del Toro, um, uh, and I don't want to tell the whole story, but just, you know, this kind of sets the ground of you know the emotional journey that happens in the, in the story. So Benicio del Toro uh, accidentally hits and kills Naomi Watts's uh, husband and daughters. Um, it's a car accident, mm-hmm. so they die. Sean Penn um, just so happens to get the organ that he needs from her husband. Um, so these are all strangers. They didn't know each other, but this event connects all three of them. Um, and so Sean Penn becomes obsessed with finding this person. So the, he has a transplant, saves his life. He becomes obsessed with finding the person that kind of gave him this organ to save his life. And so mm-hmm. he's first Naomi Watts. And they be, and they get to, they get in this relationship. Um, so again, this is this one event that connects all these people, and it kind of represents each facet of life—the emotional, the physical, and the spiritual—and how these people hit the low points in their lives and play off of each other. So it's, it's a really, really great movie um, that just shows how we are connected and how we kind of impact each other. We move through life and how certain events kind of make us stuck in this one place um and it has devastating consequences it's, it's really an emotional roller coaster of a movie and it's it's beautifully done beautifully acted um probably for me naomi watts's best role to date um so it's a great movie that i recommend to anyone to watch it yeah i i think i have heard of that if if i remember right the uh the the title 21 grams that refers to how much the heart weighs how much it's kind of how much the soul weighs so Mm -hmm. when you die they say that you lose 21 grams from your body like the weight is different and people attribute this to your soul leaving your body so the movie has to do with you know what what are we gaining in life what do we lose in life um between our experiences and how we relate to each other so yeah that that sounds interesting Mm -hmm. um okay and then if you were to write or, or only watch uh, movies about a narrow niche, mm-hmm. something like superhero movies or or some or like heist movies, uh, what would that be about? Um, I would say recently I've noticed, and um, I would never have thought 
this would have been the case. But recently I've noticed I've really gotten into sci-fi dramas. And that's between some of my favorite shows that I have loved and also the movies I'm beginning to gravitate to. So I think it all started with Lost and Fringe, which are like two of my favorite shows of all time at this point. Um, And now movies like, you know, Inception, Looper, um, some of Brent Marling's films like Another Earth, um, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, The Matrix. A lot of those I've noticed have, you know, science fiction elements, and I'm kind of gravitating more to those movies. So I'm thinking that's where, you know, my heart is going in terms of film. Um, yeah, and it's it's interesting because the ones that I recognize, uh, it's it's not just like sci-fi, like mm-hmm. space sci-fi, but sci-fi set in like the near yep. future. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like a, a more grounded sci-fi. A more grounded sci-fi, exactly. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's that. That's a, a very interesting genre. It's a, it's one that I really like as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Have right. you seen some of Britt Marling's films? Or you're a fan? Are you a fan? Or um, I I don't recognize the name okay. off the top of my head. So I, I guess that that probably means no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's new on the scene, but exciting person, actress, writer. So yeah. Okay, and then, of course, I have to ask, what's your favorite superhero movie? Um, I would say a, a more conventional choice, probably, but I would say, because I'm a huge fan of Christopher Nolan, I would say his Dark Knight trilogy is probably my favorite, um, <laughs> just because, to me, it, he did something very interesting with the, with the whole trilogy, and showing this dark brooding side, this very cinematic side of the superhero that I just, I loved and gravitated to. Um, so yeah, I would say that. And also Sam Raimi's, uh, Spider-Man, the first two, cause I, I pretend a third one is this. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that holds true with a lot of superhero trilogies. <laughs> yeah. So I love, uh, also his Spider-Man movies. I'm not a huge fan of this reboot. That's, occurring that I don't think is very necessary, but that's just own, uh, my own thoughts on that matter. Um, but I would say those two probably my uh, favorites. Probably a more conventional choice. I'm not a superhero expert like you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've... Uh... I think I tweeted this a, a, a while ago, but I, I think I'm at the point now where I have seen more superhero movies than most people have probably ever even heard of. Yes. <laughs> you, I Sometimes I see a lot of things you post or tweet, and I'm like, I've never even heard of that. <laughs> <laughs> what is that? What? I've never heard of that. But yeah, so um, <laughs> a more conventional choice, but still a good one, I think. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that, those are both two of my favorites, and... And they, they come up a lot whenever I ask this question. So, so you're definitely not alone in those. <laughs> All right. And then what would you say right now is your biggest film-wise, a film that you haven't seen yet that you feel like you should or that you just really want to but haven't gotten around to yet? Um, well, I could say I could say a whole category of films. So um, it's interesting with me. I tend to avoid certain categories of movies just because of interest. And um, even though I'm not a you know film expert, uh, I, I do think I'm a little knowledge- more knowledgeable than the normal person. Um, but my friends do make fun of me uh, for not seeing some of the classics um, that I've just avoided before one reason or the other. And those include some of the classic gangster mafia movies, so like Goodfellas, 
Untouchables, um, Scarface. Well, I've seen the first 20 minutes of Scarface, but I haven't seen the movie in, in its totality. Um, Goodfellas, things like that. Um, I think are my blind spots and those are classics mm-hmm. um, and I just have not seen any of them but I'm trying to remedy that with uh, I have me and some of my friends we always get together for uh, movie marathons just add, so I can use this as an excuse to get caught up <laughs> on things I should have seen <laughs> so we actually have for no, next week we have a um, mini marathon uh, scheduled we're going to get together and see some of these uh, gangster movies that I have not seen so yeah, that, that's I'm right there with you. Like uh, uh, whenever I started this list, I could have listed all of those, and uh, uh, most of the ones that I've seen recently are ones that uh, other people have had me watch for this for this podcast, like uh, The Godfather and um, I think you did the Untouchables ones. Yeah, The Untouchables, yeah. and I still haven't seen Goodfellas or uh, Scarface. Yep, exactly. So trying to remedy that with, with some events that will force me to watch them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, well, that it's great to to hear some of your movie tastes. So thank you for answering that uh, those questions. And that brings us to the movie that you had me watch for the first time, District Nine. For every day, there is a night. Nobody comes back late at night anymore. For every world, there is an underworld. The government noticed that they were moving into new areas. That's when things started to get out of hand. And for every hero... People are living in fear. Yes, I really wanted you to watch this because I think it's a brilliant movie that kind of puts together the visual cinematic experience with one that's very provocative and thought-provoking. So this is District 9, which uh, was released in 2009. Um, I believe it was the first feature film from Neil Blomkamp, who's kind of um, Peter Jackson's protege. Um, And the movie really discusses, it's a a sci-fi thriller drama, and it really discusses um, alien... Uh, it's not an alien invasion, but kind of alien uh, U.S. captivity um, as a way to discuss political unrest and unfair treatment of humanity uh, by the government and our, our own like xenobiotic or sorry xenophobic uh, views of you know those other groups of people. So I think it's a great movie, and I really wanted you to watch this. Um, so I'm very curious to see what you think about it. Yeah, and and I I really loved it. It's it's one that I'd heard about, especially this year because uh, Elysium came out this year, yes, yes. so that brought a lot of discussion about District Nine, and it, it's something that I had heard brought up a lot, but it's something that I never really knew exactly what it was about. Like I'd heard, uh, like I knew that the spaceship was in the air for years. Um, and it was about um, it was set in South Africa, um, I and the, the aliens were called prawns. Mm-hmm. Uh, but aside from and and also the the whole um, like political backdrop, the uh, the allegory aspect of it. But aside from that, I, I didn't even realize that it was, um, or I'd skipped over the the fact that it was a mockumentary style for a lot of it until I'd actually. Like looked at the trailer uh, whenever I was 
cutting the, the mashup trailer for the show and uh, whenever I started watching it. And uh, it's uh, one of those where I really enjoy movies like this that are given a modest budget, but use that budget extremely well. Like this was made for $30 million, but it looks like a, almost like a $100 million blockbuster. It does. It does. Uh, especially the all the effects with the uh, the prawns and uh, and the uh, alien weaponry and 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 all of that stuff it, it looks fantastic and it's uh, given that um, sort of realism with the the mockumentary style yeah I think that was a element of the film that served it really well so yeah you you felt like it's happening happening now or it did happen like it's something you would see like on the news um so it really puts you in the movie and i really love that element of it Mm -hmm. the one thing that that's kind of interesting is the fact that the the prawns have this language that's basically like almost just like computer garble (laughs) (laughs) except it's interesting that that they definitely understand uh, human speech, but most of the humans seem to at least have a basic understanding of their speech, which I guess that makes sense because uh, um, they've been around for 20 years, I believe. Yes. But it's it's still, I don't know, it's still a little bit of a stretch for, for me that you can hear this this uh, computer garble and, and understand it in in terms of a language. I mean, yeah, I mean, in ways, in, in little ways, the movie had some holes in it. I think one of them is what you just brought up, because um, we have to leap to 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 buy a lot of the things, you know, like you said about the language and how, you know, it, it never really explained exactly what happened to these aliens, why were they stranded, Um uh, you know, how can they understand us? How are they so advanced? Things like that. So, uh, yeah, I would agree. Well, I mean, some of those things didn't bother me too much because I, I think I think I like the fact that a lot of it was left unexplained. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it was just that, that the alien language was so far removed from human language that even twenty year, even like twenty years, given to understand it, I, I feel like that it would be kind of hard for them to to get to that point. But that that's just a kind of a minor thing because I, I think for the most part, you don't even well except for like towards the end, um, uh, because there there is one other part of this movie that that I did hear about um, before going into it, which. I don't know. I, I've heard referred to as a bit of a spoiler, but the fact that the the main character, uh, played by Shalto Copley, yeah. he uh, he gets hit with this uh, this liquid, and he basically throughout the the second two thirds of the movie, he's slowly turning into an alien himself. Yes. Which I, I I think that's that's kind of at I think it's really at the heart, especially of the allegory of this movie in terms of xenophobia and things like that, because he is set up as this, uh, he's leading this, uh, uh, I forget the initials, but this company that is evicting 
these aliens from Dis- District 9 into District 10. Like, and basically, they referred to it at one point as practically a, a concentration camp, almost, because District 9 is right on the borders of uh, Johannesburg in South Africa, and the, there's a lot of political unrest, and so they're moving them to District 10, which is like uh, 20 kilometers away from the away from the city. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very much a film about how he gets caught up in the middle of this, I guess, supposed industry war and, and, and corporation and the aliens and how they are in captivity. So it's very a human. It's very it's very much a humanistic story in which he, like you said, he gets some of the the alien whatever the, it was the so rocket like, fuel is <laughs> it's pretty much what it's set up to be <laughs> yeah that was in a, this canister that that you know um the, the alien christopher I, guess, I think his name was what he needed <laughs> so they can get back to the mothership so they can escape and i guess uh get help for you know his brethren that was here um, on Earth, but he you know get, you know he gets some spilled on him and he slowly be, turns into this alien. So he tur- so in the beginning of the movie he's kind of like on the side. He's kind of like a um, I guess a minion of this corporation and he kind of has his views aligned with them in terms of uh, you know how he views the aliens. But then he slowly becomes one and he kind of you know gets in this fight that they have uh, to save themselves. Right. Basically, his physical transformation, uh, becoming more and more alien, is the same. It represents his uh, his mental um, transformation as he starts to sympathize more for the aliens. Exactly. Yes. Because whenever he starts, he doesn't he like he views them as just a nuisance, uh, and he is uh, right along there with all the other things. He views them as things and, and not really as intelligent creatures. Exactly. And then I also love the way the movie, the movie also presents these aliens as, you know, as, as you would present human society. So they're, they come in different forms. You know, they're adults, they're children. They're the aliens that are more intelligent, the more simple aliens, the more the ones that are more vicious, more compassionate. So in that way also, it's really set, the movie really sets up to, for you to view this, this kind of alien community as like a human community and how this can easily, you know, happen. And it does happen in, in the world in terms of, you know, this separation between, you know, us and them and, uh, you know, you know, we're superior. We make decisions for this group because they can't make decisions for themselves or they can't take care of themselves or they can't govern themselves or, uh, you know, in, in that way. So, again, great movie, the way they set up this this humanistic aspect, aspect of it. Right. And, and like District 9 is is set up as as basically just like a, a slum area like it. And uh Instead of aliens, they they very well could just be like a, a poor, like a poor black community, mm-hmm. or a poor Hispanic community, or any other set along racial lines. It, except the the only difference is, since this is sci-fi, it can be the very obvious racial lines as humans and aliens, where there yeah. there's no question that they are completely different. Exactly, exactly. It's kind of similar. Would you say it's kind of similar to like what they do with the whole X-Men world. Right. Um, where there's the humans and there's the mutants and there's this internal struggle between the two groups. 
Right, that, that's something that the X Men does does do very well. Uh, I believe it, it does a lot better in the comics than it's really ever done yet in the movies. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's hints of it throughout a lot of the movies, um, but then like the uh, another somewhat trilogy, the the third where it goes off the rails in the third movie, they they have the the cure where they can basically not be mutants anymore, mm-hmm. which completely. I don't know, throws off the the whole uh, racial tensions and that are set up and the the racial allegories in that movie. Like if they, it's like you can suddenly become not black anymore. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> um, but to, and another thing that's that's great about this movie is really how well the, the prawns, especially like uh, Christopher and and his kid, are set up through this movie because it, it's something that. Christopher is a really strong character throughout the movie, and not only that, but the, the way that his look, um, like he, he's very sympathetic, and the time spent on the effects really helped to to give you to make you sympathetic for his character. Agreed. Yes. Because he he definitely looks very. Um, um, I don't know the right word for it. He's very sympathetic. Uh, he's very uh, emotive yes. with with the way he looks. Exactly. Um, and, he, and he has a, a very nice a nice character arc. Like he's set up as um, he's much more much less uh, antagonistic against the humans, and he's much more intelligent than many of the other prawns seem to be. Exactly. So yeah, again, it shows that. Um, like you said, there is this more compassionate, humanistic type of alien that mean you know it, it shows us that there are uh, within this group there is a range, um, and he becomes kind of the leader in a way um, of this alien community, and we get you know more time with him, and we get to learn about that community through him. Mm-hmm. So it was a great character uh, for this film. Yeah, and there's there's also other aspects of this movie where you do get into certain things, like um, uh, like with the the World War II, where you find out that the that this military company has been performing experiments on on the aliens, like genetic experiments. They've been basically torturing these aliens in order to find out more about them, uh, and specifically in order to be able to use their weapons because the alien weapons are configured to the alien DNA. So humans can't use them. Right. And it also shows, cause I think when um, he has the canister spilled on him and then he slowly turns into an alien, mm-hmm. I think his arm goes first, if I'm not right. um, mistaken. And so he, he gets to feel how this, I, I think the shift happens there because it's then where they kind of turn the corporation turn against him because, mm-hmm. like you said, the, the weapons are kind of configured to alien DNA. So only aliens can operate it. Um, right. and, and the U.S. really wants to, you know, get this technology and, and learn how it, how it works. So they kind of turn against him um, because he now can op- he can operate it. And so they want to do experiments on him uh, to show, you know, to see how how this technology works. And so I think in that moment, he realizes that 
um, when he was on the you know side of we're, we're all human, and then he, he becomes an alien, um, that they would turn against him in a minute, and that sets up this whole you know this tension in the movie. It begins to set up this tension. Mm-hmm. And then and then there's also a, a third party. There's the uh, uh, the the crime um, like the crime lord that's in there that has touches of like voodoo, um, where he's uh, wants to eat the uh, yes. eat pieces of the aliens in order to get their power, and so he wants to have um, Charlotte Copley's arm, his alien arm, uh, which I, I kind of got the impression that he wanted it because, in a way, he wanted to become more alien himself because he seemed like he was uh, physically disabled. Yeah, I agree with that because the, the alien aliens are set up to be, you know, more physically domineering, more, you know, stronger than humans. So it's, again, this whole, like, us versus them, but then us, sometimes we, there's things in that community that we desire, um, even though we, you know, see them as, you know, inferior, there's things in in their community we kind of value and want for ourselves. So I think that's kind of envisioned in that whole, uh, um, storyline. So yes, he wants to eat that, eat eat him so that he can kind of become an alien, kind of I guess take in his DNA so he can be stronger and uh, take on this this desired quality of the alien that he really wants. Um, and I think that kind of brings in because this movie is it's very in in a way it's very South African um, just because of the background of the the filmmaker and a lot of people involved. And I think it does take take into consideration a lot of the South African uh, religious kind of voodoo esque natures um, to that culture. That I think also puts another layer added layer to the film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and something else that I I thought was kind of neat about how the aliens are represented because it's it's an interesting mix of like savagery but high and high technology because the the aliens they're living in the slums where they're basically like scavengers they eat cat food they and they behave what we would think of as being savages and yet they come from this obviously uh, highly technologically advanced race Although they they did uh, theorize that this that the aliens that were there were all uh, basically like the worker class and and all the uh, um, like the the leaders had all died from some type of disease which they never uh, that was never proven to be a valid theory or not but it's it's something that would make sense just based on what the way it was presented in the movie and and I thought that was kind of an interesting angle to to uh, look at within the movie. Very true. But all, and also how, in, in a lot of ways, they made them more into savages than they probably could have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because they're, they're, it's yeah. like they're forced into savagery just mm-hmm. due to the, the treatment and their environment. Exactly, exactly. All right. Um, do you have any final thoughts about District 9? Um, just that, again, wonderful, wonderful movie. Um, I think it, it grabbed some Oscar nominations during this time and, you know, brilliantly so. Um, I think it's, it's a movie that, 
um, I think anyone can relate to in different aspects. Like we've discussed the, the, the visuals, the humanistic aspect of it. Um, and this provocative way that it took a very original, a very simple idea and made it into a very original concept. So mm. it's a it's a great movie, um, m- much better than Elysium in a lot of ways. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think um, he kind of took this bigger budget and and probably uh, was kind of dampered by the studio and Elysium did not turn out as well as District Nine. But uh, District, yeah, that's that's what I've heard. <laughs> um, I yes, I agree with that. And um, but District Nine is is a, a very very great movie that really I guess showed that the contemporary uh, scientific dr- thriller is you know is not dead and is, is more to come in that area. Yeah, that, and that's something that that we didn't talk about much because aside from all the um, all the allegorical aspects of the movie, it, it does have um, a very strong like uh, action um, like action movie in the in the latter half, which is is pretty entertaining to watch. Like whenever, and, and there's a lot of uh, blood and gore too, especially towards the end. Yes, much more than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially with that lightning gun that basically just explodes a person into a, a, a puddle of blood. <laughs> All right. Um, we are going to take a quick break, and then whenever we come back, we're going to talk about the film that I had you watch for the first time, Dr. Horrible's Sing-Along Blog. This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com. And that is why the resurrection themes present in Pulp Fiction elevate the film above... The, uh, I'm sorry, Pat, what is it? Well, well Pat, a- as interesting as it is to hear you prattle on about Tarantino again, uh, do you think maybe we should stop talking to ourselves? Well, can you think of an alternative? As a matter of fact, Pat, I can. What, what if we spoke with other bloggers about the world of film and film writing? We, we could work with the large association of movie blogs, the Internet's premier film blog directory. Go on. And, and what better place for land members to hang out but a pasture? We, we can call it the Film Pasture. Okay, so we'll work on the name. The Film Pasture, a new podcast from the Large Association of Movie Blogs, available in iTunes. All right, back in 2008, during the TV, during the writer's strike in Hollywood, uh, Joss Whedon used that t- opportunity to do this side project of his, uh, which was something that wouldn't be covered. It, it started out as being basically a web series that was shot for a, a very limited budget just over a short period of time uh, with Joss Whedon and his brother Jed Whedon and several of his friends that, that, that he had worked with in the past. And they did this short musical comedy that originally aired on the Internet as uh, it wasn't the first web series by any means, but it was definitely the most popular web series and something that really turned web series into what it is today. It showed that it, it could be done successfully, and uh, and who would have thought that it it's became uh, it came out of this. The short story, which all three parts added together, is only 42 minutes. It's about the the length of a standard one-hour TV episode whenever you take out commercials. 
and it follows this uh, this villain, Doctor Horrible, and his quest to become a supervillain and joining the Evil League of Evil. And he does this through his uh, web blog, his video blog, and uh, he ends up falling in love with this woman, Penny, which he's been seeing on laundry day for several years, but hasn't had the uh, courage to ask him out. And so we go through this, um, his journey in becoming this super villain, and it's um, all done with plenty of musical numbers. And you would think that it sounds bizarre, but it's it's entirely watchable, and I really loved it. I, I love all the all the songs and everything about it. I've seen it many many times. Uh, so, what did you think about Doctor Horrible's sing along blog? I loved it. Who doesn't love Josh Wheaton? That's, this is what I'm saying. Who does not love him? And um, like you said, you would think this would be a little bit of a disaster because you have musical numbers. And, you know, this crusade of the supervillain and, you know, it's a little bit campy, but it's it's awesome. It's very Josh Wheaton and I, I loved it. Yeah. So uh, let me ask you, uh, what did you know about this this movie before you watched it? So I always um, I've heard of it and I, I knew that it starred, uh, you know, Neil Patrick Harris and Nathan Fillion. uh and was created by Josh Wheaton. Um, and a couple of my friends uh, in the past had mentioned it and said I should watch it. So it was on my radar, but I just never got around to it. Um, and then over the years, uh, you know, Neil Patrick Harris and Nathan Fillion have, you know, kind of gotten even more famous. Um, mm-hmm. I've, since then, I've seen I've seen Firefly and Serenity. So <laughs> I, I've gotten on the Nathan Fillion bandwagon. Um <laughs> And so I knew a little bit of it. I was aware of it, but I just had never seen it. Yeah, it's and I think it's it's one of those things where if you do finally hear about it and watch it, it's really bite-sized. So you can like it doesn't take very long to watch it. It's not like watching a three-hour movie. Exactly. But I and, wanted more. I wanted more. <laughs> Well, one thing that, that I will suggest, that I don't know if you got the DVD or if you uh, watched it online, but on the DVD, there is a, a special feature. There's a regular commentary, but there's also commentary, the musical. Yes, I've heard. I, I watched it online, um, but in my quest to find more information, because I wanted to know, is there going to be a sequel? Um, I heard about or read about the the added features and the, the commentary in, in musical form. And I love musicals, which is why I think another reason why I really enjoyed <laughs> the sing-along log. Um, but yeah, I did hear about uh, how there's commentary in song, so mm-hmm. I will be finding that <laughs> and watching that soon. Yeah, there, there's some funny songs in the commentary, too. Uh, one of them is uh, Nathan Fillion singing about how uh, um, he's better than Neil. <laughs> and uh, Neil Patrick Harris has a song about a, a cell phone game called uh, uh, Ninja Rope. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and then, let's see, Marissa uh, Tancheron, she was uh, one of the writers of the movie, and she also played the uh, the Asian in the third act in the uh, the oh, three groupies. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, she has a song about how there's no Asians in the movies. <laughs> 
So yeah, yeah. The if you do get if you can find it online or if you eventually get the DVD, that that's definitely a really fun special feature on there. Um, but uh, uh, one other thing that I, I think Joss Whedon is uh, known for now is uh, the way he likes to kill off his characters. Um, so jump, kind of jumping ahead to the ending. What what did you think about? Like, did did you? Uh, I, I guess being a fan of Joss Whedon, were you expecting somebody important to die? I was not necessarily like I, it wasn't in my, the forefront of my mind while watching it. But as you say, um, he he is known to do that. Um, I've seen the you know a little bit of his work, so I know it's a it's something that he plays with often. Um, when it did happen, I was like, oh, yes, this is Josh Wheaton. So <laughs> <laughs> just remembered. So, yes, yes. Yeah. And, uh, um, I guess what would you say would you, was your favorite song in, in this movie? Um, I would say anything that Neil Patrick Harris did. Well, I don't think I had a favorite song because I, I love both him and Nathan Gill and how they played off of each other. What I really liked about the movie or the the series, whatever you want to call it, um, it kind of played with this whole, uh, it's kind of like a parody of the whole superhero uh, villain contention. So, um, you know, in this one, instead of normally we have a superhero who is, you know, inherently good or stands for good and he's kind of um, all to help others. But here he's very much, very pompous, um, the superhero played by Nathan Fillion, um, very pompous, very uh, into himself, very vain, um, and that vanity goes beyond you know any good that he is supposed to be doing. And on the other hand, we have you know Patrick Harris, who is the villain. You know, traditionally the villain is set up to be someone to be loathed, feared, um, in no shape or form to be. Um, uh, for you to, you know, feel sorry for or root for in any way. But here he's kind of like this lowly guy who just wants wants to belong to the, what was the evil? Yeah, the evil league of the eagle. <laughs> led, led by uh, the bad horse, the thoroughbred, the thoroughbred of sin. Yes, the horse. <laughs> Um, <laughs> but you have a, a, a villain that's very much, um, you know, kind of like this everyday guy that wants, just wants to belong, but yet he's the villain. And then normally you'll have in superhero, uh, movies, you'll have the very hot, um, woman that's in the middle of, of these, but here it's more of a everyday nerdy, intelligent type of girl who does good. So it's, I just love the way it kind of was a parody of um, of what we normally think of superhero movies and how the songs kind of played with that notion. So I don't think I necessarily have a favorite song, um, uh, but I think I love the whole the whole scene in the what was it a press conference was it the mm-hmm. conference for the the homeless shelter the homeless shelter yeah i loved all the songs that were attached to that <laughs> and um again how it played with this whole notion of you know, like the anti-superhero uh uh kind of uh story they say that home is where the heart is so your real home's in your chest it's your chest yes <laughs> so, yeah. yeah i i 
I really did like how they do kind of play with those conventions because even though Captain Hammer is a hero, he really doesn't have a whole lot of heroic qualities aside from his strength and and how he's respected because he basically goes after Penny. Um, well, initially it's because he's a womanizer, but then after he finds out that Doctor Horrible likes her, then he goes out. Then he specifically goes after her just because, like basically just to take her away from Doctor Horrible. Exactly. And, and yet Doctor Horrible has these aspects like. Um, you see him actually caring about people like he doesn't want to build a death ray initially uh, because that's against his character he didn't he didn't want to fight Johnny Snow in the park because there's kids there and he has several slight moments like that yeah which made it really really fun um uh sorry yeah it's it really helped you um uh, sympathize for Dr. Horrible a, a lot more than than Captain Hammer Yes, yes. And I loved his um his sidekick. Moist, yeah. <laughs> oh, that was funny as well. Yeah, and there's so much stuff going on in the background with with the visuals. Like, I don't know if you caught it, if you just watched it once, but uh, during the, the, scene, the song in, I think, the second act where uh, Neil and Penny are, are singing together... Um, and Captain Hammer has Penny at the homeless shelter. And if you see in the background, you can see Dr. Horrible with a fake mustache dipping uh, soup for the homeless people. And he's just, yeah, he's just staring at them. And then you see him, he's not even, like, first he, he dips a bowl, uh, he dips the soup into a bowl for somebody. But then he's just staring and he's just lifting the ladle and then pouring it back into the, into the pot. <laughs> And then, of course, at the end, there's uh, there's all these really odd uh, supervillains in the Evil League of Evil. Like, there's a person that uh, I think one of them's called Evil George Washington. Oh yeah, that's I was going to point him out. I'm like, <laughs> Evil George Washington. I think he was shown last before the horse. <laughs> yeah, and, and it's great too because uh, they they always talk about bad horse, and he's got the the three singers that just pop up out of nowhere whenever he's reading the letters, which is great. The the three guys, I think one of them's Jed Whedon, who's one of the writers, and Joss Whedon's brother, and they're dressed up in the old west getup. Yep. And uh, uh, whenever you do see bad horse, it is an actual horse. Yes. So yeah, I, I just love it's a, lo- a lot of little tidbits like that that just make it so great mm-hmm. um, and made me chuckle through the whole thing. <laughs> I love Josh Whedon's brand of humor. Like he has this kind of unique brand of humor that you can pick up during any of his work that you know makes him him. So I love him. Yeah, it's. Uh, uh, I mean, it's it's so specific to him that. I mean, there, there's a phrase called Whedon-esque, which is, it's also like one of his biggest fan sites is called is Whedon-esque.com. And it, it's really, it's really a recognizable style. And I know it's something that I, that I really enjoy. It's just this quirky humor that's, it's very like literate and there's like the, a turn of phrase it's it's hard to describe, but it's whenever you see it, you definitely recognize it. Exactly. <laughs> and I also really liked how they kind of 
play with some of the things, like especially at the act breaks, um, like the, the end of the first song, um, he just cuts off at like freeze, I think, mm-hmm. and then he just starts talking to Moist, and then I, I especially really like the the ending of the movie where he's um, singing about being, being yeah being in the evil league of evil now. And he says, and he ends with, and I just can't feel, and then it cuts to him mm-hmm. uh, back in front of the the uh, uh, webcam, and the music drops out, and he just says a thing, and then it just cuts to black. And they, and um, there is a sequel in the works, but uh, like everybody that's works that worked on this really wants it to happen. The only thing that's been postponing it is the fact that everybody that worked on worked on this is so busy with their other projects like uh, Joss Whedon's uh, in charge of the Marvel Universe right now and is doing <laughs> Avengers 2 and Nathan Fillion has his TV series I, think, I guess we need another writer strike for us to get <laughs> something like that. Has to yeah, <laughs> just organize okay. another writer strike just so they can have time to work on this on the side. <laughs> but yeah, I'm mean, I'm impressed about uh, I'm impressed just from it being I know it was a, a low cost production and he kind of put this together in his in his spare time. But I'm just very impressed on how it came out and just how well it did. With the fans, because Joss Whedon has a dedicated set of fans. Like mm-hmm. it's the name, you know, a filmmaker today that had a very dedicated fan base. He would be in in there because they support his work. Um, so I was impressed on how how well this turned out and how um, well it has done with the public. And because um, Joss Whedon also did, I know he had another break at some point, and he did a uh, recent. Um, Shakespeare adaptation? Yeah, um, right after doing The Avengers, he filmed the Much Ado About Nothing. Yes, which, um, I don't know if you had a chance to see that, which, it's really good. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but I I know that, well, like, I I recognize the the actors were all from his previous works, and uh, he filmed it all just inside his own house. So it, it's really well done, and um, like you, like we talked about his brand of humor, he kind of infuses that into uh, Much Ado About Nothing, which in itself is about you know the follies of of these people getting together in these relationships, and he kind of puts his own brand of humor in there, and it's one of the best Shakespeare film adaptations I've ever seen. Um, so it's also really really good, and so I'm all for these little side projects. I mean, I'm for his big too because love I love the Avengers um but he also has a way to do these little these little side projects that are also just as um just as wonderful and brilliant as anything else he does yeah and something else I wanted to mention about Joss Whedon which which I think is kind of funny uh, because there's a few films that he worked on whenever he was an upcoming writer mm-hmm. and I didn't know about it until later but I, I eventually found out that he worked. He worked on um, as a scriptwriter for the movie Titan A.E. and uh, it was like a, a Don Bluth's uh, one of his last films mm-hmm. before he before he got out of the animation business, pretty much. And uh, there was a few lines in there which I always liked as my favorite lines in the movie. 
and then I found out that Joss Whedon was uh, worked on the script, and I'm like, oh, that makes perfect sense now. Like, uh, they are um, there's a scene where they're trying to sneak past this guard, and so they try and bluff this guard, and the guard like completely throws out their logic, and and uh, they say, who would have thought to find an intelligent guard? <laughs> And I found out that that was like a contribution of Joss Whedon. And then, and then another one is at the end, um, they basically terraform a new Earth and they're discussing what to call it, what to name it. And then one of them's like, how about we just call it Earth 2? And then the other one's like, how about Bob? Let's call it Bob. Planet Bob. <laughs> and that's just his kind of humor that, that I really like. Yeah. All right. Um, I think we should go ahead and wrap up. Is is there anything else that you wanted to say about uh, Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog? I can't wait for a sequel. <laughs> I'll leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, me either. <laughs> All right, well, I'd like to thank you for joining me today. Uh, why don't you go ahead and remind everybody where they can find you online? Yes, my main uh, blog that focuses on independent film um, is called Life Between Films. It can be found on Tumblr. And I'm also a film contributor for Cinematic Jammer, so you can go to cinecats.com and find some of my work there, as well as uh, the large um, association of movie bloggers. I do a lot of uh, uh, recaps of film festivals that I attend every year, so you can also find me there. All right, and that's Life Between Films with Dashes. Dashes.tumblr.com. Okay, and... Uh, as always, I am Bubba Wheat, and you can find me at flightstightsandmovienights.com. You can follow me on Twitter at Bubba Wheat, and you can also find me on Facebook at Flights, Tights, and Movie Nights. And uh, lately I have been doing a game, a daily game on Facebook where I'm posting the chest of a movie superhero. So if you want to join in that, be sure and like the site on Facebook. And if you want to know what two films we'll be talking about on the next regular episode, go ahead and listen through to the end for a mashup trailer. And next week, I will be back with another mini-episode of FilmWise Raw. Until next time. Beyond any terror you have imagined. A nightmare. We'll tear your soul apart. Within these walls, the unholy is unleashed. It's not polite to hit a lady.